Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi and Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. So Yingyi's, last year, we repeatedly warned our clients that we were expecting big drawdowns in asset markets, including equities, credit, which is their own asset class, fixed rate, interest rate duration, crypto, and others, driven by a huge shift in interest rate expectations for 2022, which we argued would materialize in Q1. And we forecast that the sharp change in expectations would be precipitated by persistent inflation problems, and that all of this bad news would be amplified by global military conflict risks. And gee whizzing us, the first quarter of 2022 certainly hasn't disappointed. And thankfully, we've been able to position to profit from wider credit spreads, falling equity values, and much higher interest rates in our own portfolios. Yes, Chris. And March in particular was an extraordinary record-setting month following on from the weakness recorded by global bond markets in February. With Coolabar's portfolios materially outperforming benchmarks for peers and the major fixed income indices during this sharp downturn, all our long-only and long-short strategies registered solid returns in March, while our index-tracking active composite bond strategy beat the benchmark by a significant margin. Our long-short strategies also delivered robust returns in the similarly challenging month of February when the major bond benchmarks suffered losses. Yeah, Yingers, and I think that February and March have become a new massive stress test for fixed income investors. We're going to look back and see how folks performed in February and March to understand whether they were carrying a lot of risk, which came out to roost in those months, or whether they're able to pre-position for what were highly predictable events. March 2022 officially became the worst month in history for the Aussie bond market, as judged by the benchmark fixed rate Osbond Composite Bond Index, which fell by a staggering 3.75%. And that's the worst return recorded by the index in the last 33 years of available data. Sadly, for many investors, zero duration or floating rate strategies were not spared either because of a big jump in credit spreads. And so March was also the third worst month in the 24-year history of the Osbond floating rate mode index, which fell 0.29%. That's right, Chris. And this continues a string of losses for both bond indices on the back of high interest rates and wider credit spreads. So the composite bond index was down 1.21% in February and lost 5.88% over the March quarter. The FRN index declined in both February and March as well. And over the 12 months to the 31st of March 2022, the Composite Bond Index lost 5.5%, while the much lower volatility FRN index declined 0.04%. Yeah, Yingers, and as I mentioned, late last year, we repeatedly advised investors to expect large losses from fixed rate bonds as a result of our forecast for a sharp increase in government bond yields driven by protracted inflation pressures. So for us, it's been unsurprising that Australia's 10-year government bond yield has jumped by more than 180 basis points from just 1.08% in August last year to a peak around 3% at the time we recorded this podcast. And remarkably, Chris, the three worst months in the last 33 years of composite bond index history have all arrived in the past 15 months specifically a 3.75% loss in March 2022, which you mentioned, also a 3.58% loss in February 2021, and a 3.55% loss in October 2021. In fact, a staring six of last 15 months for the Composite Bond Index have been negative, i.e. 40%. In comparison, only 29% of months since August 1989 were negative. 
The big silver lining for investors is that they're now getting the best 10-year interest rates on Aussie government bonds, i.e. around 3%, as you mentioned, that they have had in years. Yeah, that's right, Yingers. We're definitely getting yields now that are multiple what we could capture in the post-pandemic period. And for many years, we have warned clients that the ultimate response to the central banking reflex of printing money to bail out every economic shock would be an acute inflation cycle that would force rates much higher. Crushing fixed rate bonds. Our hypothesis has been that the QE to infinity policy reaction function only works for as long as inflation is not a structural problem, which it now appears to be. Seeing what's played out recently is also interesting because after the pandemic first hit, we publicly warned investors to expect much more frequent losses from the historically very stable floating rate node index as central banks move their cash rates to zero. The ensuing decline in yields and credit spreads underpinning the FRN index meant that there was a lot less organic or innate income protecting investors' total returns. And Chris, in mid-2021, Coolbar projected that Aussie credit spreads would widen as a result of, one, the need for banks to ramp up senior bond issuance to repay the $188 billion that they had borrowed from the RBA, and two, the forecast closure by APRA of the $140 billion committed liquidity facility, which banks had historically used to buy their own senior bonds and RMBS, keeping the associated credit spreads tight. APRA duly announced the shuttering of the CLF in September last year. In late 2021 and early 2022, we expressed the view that there would be a material widening of credit spreads in 2022 as central banks raised their cash rates much more aggressively than market pricing assumed to cauterize a budding wage price spiral. This spread widening would be amplified by the end of QE and the advent of quantitative tightening or central banks shrinking their balance sheets. The playbook was written in 2018 when the US Federal Reserve lifted its cash rate to around 2.5% and allowed its balance sheet to run off, which precipitated a big increase in 10-year government bond yields. We saw US Treasuries pierce 3.2%, sharply wider credit spreads, and a 20% drawdown in equities. Yeah, but the key difference is, Ying, is that back in 2018, core inflation was below 2% and wages growth was running at a benign circa 3% pace. In contrast, in 2021 and this year, core inflation, wages and inflation expectations have jumped to more than 5%, the highest levels in decades. The flip side of this coin is that wider credit spreads and higher cash rates as central banks lift policy rates mean that future income levels and bonds will be superior to the paltry yields offered since the pandemic. But wider spreads, as you alluded to, Chris, have hurt the Osborne FRN index, which recorded three negative months in succession in late 2021 for the first time ever. Between 1999 and 2021, the probability of the FRN index having a negative month was just 3.4%. Since the end of 2020, over 40% of months have been negative. More precisely, six of the 14 negative months in total since December 1998 have materialised in the period after January 2021. That is, 43% of all negative months over the last 24 years have been registered in recent times. In March this year, we saw five-year major bank senior bond spreads jump from 73 basis points over the quarterly bank bill swap rate, i.e. BBSW, to 90 basis points, i.e. 17 basis points wider. In the same manner, five-year tier two spreads leapt from 163 basis points over BBSW to 184 basis points, i.e. 21 basis points wider. One step further down the capital stack, five-year 81 hybrid spreads drifted from 227 basis points to 240 basis points over BBSW, i.e. 13 basis points wider. 
Aussie credit was playing catch-up to the US dollar and euro investment-grade bond markets, where spreads have been moving sharply wider since January. In 2022, we have watched Euro IG corporate spreads explode 65 basis points wider at their peak in March, based on Bloomberg data, although they have since retraced about 30 basis points to be net 35 basis points higher. Meanwhile, US corporate IG spreads move similarly, climbing about 50 basis points at their peak in mid-March, following which they have compressed about 30 basis points, i.e. net they are 20 basis points wider. Global equities suffered in 2022 as a consequence of the much higher discount rates. In price terms, the S&P 500 equities index troughed at a 14% loss in mid-March for the 2022 calendar year to date, thereafter rallying to close down 5.2% by the end of the month. Life has been more challenging for growth stocks, with the Nasdaq Composite Bond Index losing 20% in price terms at its lowest point in mid-March relative to its closing 2021 level. It has since recovered to be down 9.1% in the year to date. Yeah, Ying, as the moves in credit markets have been broadly consistent with our short-term targets for spreads to converge to their 2018 wides, as have the equity market losses, where we were looking for 5 to 15% drawdowns in equities in the first quarter. In December, we were forecasting six to seven hikes from the Fed in 2022, while the market was only pricing in three hikes. The market has now relented and it's pricing in eight to nine hikes this year. We've also been expecting the US 10-year government bond yield to rise back towards and indeed above its 2018 peak, which was around 3.2%. It certainly hasn't disappointed to date. With the 10-year yield climbing more than 100 basis points from 1.35% in December to over 2.55% at the time of this podcast. And Chris, as I mentioned earlier, Coolabar's portfolios materially outperformed in March. The long-short strategies were a particular standout, as we have argued they should be in an interest rate or inflation shock, recording large positive returns in both February and March. Note that the index tracking active composite bond strategy also posted large relative alpha over this period. This outperformance has been powered by differentiated portfolio positioning. Over 2021, we had taken profits on most of our credit exposures, substantially increasing portfolio weights to cash and interest rate hedged government bonds to near record levels because of our strongly negative views on credit spreads, interest rate risk or duration risk, and equities amongst other asset classes, for example, crypto as well, driven by non-consensus forecasts for large interest rate increases in 2022 based on persistent US inflation problems. Over 2021 and 2022, we actively built up multi-billion dollar credit hedges in Aussie, US, UK and Euro bank bonds in the Aussie dollar, US dollar and Euro markets. We also actively accumulated multi-billion dollar credit hedges in Aussie dollar, US dollar and Euro investment grade and high yield credit by buying protection on US dollar, Euro and Aussie dollar credit default swap indices for the IG and high yield markets. In around mid-March, Coolabar's team concluded that most, but not all, of the short-term interest rate and inflation and conflict risks we have been warning about since 2021 had become more or less fully priced by the equities, credit and interest rate markets. We therefore monetized most of our shorts and hedges on the basis of the view that risk would rally in the near term. Over the longer term, we believe risk will struggle as the probability of a US recession increases. Another key driver of our outperformance has been a contrarian view on the state government bond or semis market. In February and March 2022, the semis market was arguably one of the best performing spread asset classes globally, recording spread compression rather than spread expansion as the market came to embrace our views regarding one, the need for banks to buy more than $400 billion of government bonds for regulatory liquidity reasons, 
And two, the prospect of the state budget deficits shrinking much faster than the market expected with supply in FY23 likely to be 25 to 40% less than expectations. Over February and March 2022, 10-year state government bond spreads actually compressed about six basis points, despite the RBA ending QE, compared to credit spreads globally that have trended 20 to 30 basis points wider. Back in October 2021, we warned that the risk of global military conflicts was much higher than many people, including those in markets, had assumed, and that the outbreak of war could have highly adverse consequences for asset prices. We further recommended that investors embrace a democratic ESG criterion and stop allocating capital to dictatorships and despots. You might recall, we specifically called out the New South Wales government for providing debt and equity funding to Russia, Saudi Arabia, China, and the UAE. And we're talking about many hundreds of millions of dollars. Of course, this would have been standard fare across many passive institutional portfolios that were blindly investing in emerging markets and perhaps unwittingly financing many despotic regimes. It's funny how events change perspectives. We suspect some folks initially thought we were being alarmist, yet our warnings were based on advanced academic research that applied sophisticated statistical and machine learning methods to 160 years of military, economic, demographic, social and political data to estimate for the first time the objective empirical probabilities of conflicts erupting between different nation states. And Chris, as you're well aware, the truth is we have been highlighting these risks for over a decade. In 2012, we asserted that the most profound hazard Australians face is the risk of war. We invest vast taxpayer resources, more than $30 billion each year, nominally insuring against it. Yet despite more than 200 conflicts since 1900, causing 35 million deaths, there is a startling dearth of quantitative research on forecasting the frequency and severity of wars. Here, we are talking about projecting the probability distribution of future conflicts. After years of work, we were finally able to address this conflict modelling lacuna. While the data set used in the models ends in 2020, i.e. they do not have the benefit of information after 2020, they nonetheless put the probability of a full kinetic conflict between Russia and the Ukraine at a substantial 1 in 4 to 1 in 5, or 22.2%, over the next 10 years. Crucially, this specific probability included a declaration of war between these countries. Worryingly, the conflict probabilities between the US and China and China and Taiwan were an even higher 45% and 74% respectively. Sadly, the Russia-Ukraine risks have come to fruition in 2022, wreaking havoc on markets. And it has suddenly dawned on investors like New South Wales that lending money to dictatorships such as Russia is a terrible idea. Indeed, there's been an international rush to dump all Russian exposures, which have been widely held as part of many investors' emerging market equities and debt portfolios. In October 2021, we explained that, quote, we require all investments to be domiciled in democratic rather than authoritarian states where there are minimum safeguards regarding the rule of law, property rights, freedom of individual and religious expression, human rights, and so on, end quote. Without this democratic criterion, it is easy to end up lending money to the likes of Vladimir Putin and the Saudi royal family. Yeah, that's right, Yingers. And no one, frankly, really seemed to care when we raised these issues last year, but they absolutely do now. 
To be clear, our democratic maxim is not just about ethics. It is founded on the idea that transparent democracies give investors a much better chance of having their legal rights enforced and protected. In our view, countries like China and Russia are uninvestable because no serious investor can have confidence in the rule of law, property rights, enforceability of claims, and or the integrity of the financial risk and other information disclosures that emanate from companies that are subject to the dictates of totalitarian regimes. Russia has just banned foreign sales of domestic investments. China has imposed similar constraints during their 2015 equity market crash. You just have to ask Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, how he feels about being President Xi's personal plaything. Taken together, these global conflict risks only amplify the negativity we have expressed in relation to almost all asset classes, save cash, equity and credit shorts, and interest rate hedge semis since late last year. Chris, let's turn to sky-high vacancies in Australia, which suggests Australia's jobless rate will decline further to the 3% area. Recent data on both job vacancies and worker mobility show that Australia's labour market is continuing to tighten, pointing to ongoing reductions in the unemployment rate and higher wages growth. In fact, currency vacancy rates are consistent with a much lower unemployment rate, raising the prospect of a very rare three-handle being recorded soon. This will only increase pressure on the RBA to soon start raising the cash rate, unwinding the emergency rate cuts of 2020. Job vacancies continue to surge, up 7% in the first quarter of 2022. Vacancies are now 3% of the labour force, which is the highest share since just before the economy entered recession in late 1974. Vacancies are extremely high as a share of the labour force in every state and territory, but among the states, WA has almost reached 4.5%. Some vacancies will be filled when non-resident workers return to Australia. But based on the pre-pandemic relationship between vacancies and the unemployment rate, we estimate that the current level of vacancies is consistent with an unemployment rate of around 2%. Assuming that the unemployment rate soon falls into the threes for the first time since 1974, this will place pressure on wages growth given the RBA thinks the Nairu ranges between the high threes and low fours, while the bank's inflation model suggests the Nairu is higher at 5.25%. With the unemployment rate likely to fall further, recent data also show clear signs of increased job mobility in Australia albeit still nothing like the great resignation phenomenon in the the US, which is also consistent with a pickup in wages growth. About 5.25% of workers have recently started a new job, which is the highest share in about a decade, mostly reflecting part-time workers changing jobs. More notable is the increase in the share of workers who plan to either change jobs or seek other employment over the next 12 months, which at about 5.25% is the highest point since the GFC. This has been driven by full-time workers where about 4.75% of full-time staff plan to quit over the next 12 months, which is the highest share since data first became available in 2001. Importantly for the RBA, increased job switching places upward pressure on labour costs and hence inflation, but not the wage price index, which is a pure measure of wages growth that is not affected by changes in the occupational and industry mix of the workforce. The RBA has recently emphasised that it evaluates a broad range of labour cost benchmarks when assessing inflation pressures, including both the unit labour cost series reported in the national accounts, as well as the wage price index. The former is more likely to signal sooner that the economy is generating wages growth that is consistent with sustainable core inflation within the RBA's 2-3% target band, which the bank has set as a precondition for its first hikes. 
At Coolabar, we continue to expect two to three rate hikes from the RBA this year, which will eventually apply non-trivial downward pressure on national house prices. In the US, the unemployment rate is practically back at pre-pandemic levels and well below estimates of the Nairu. That is, the unemployment rate fell to 3.6% in March, almost matching the pre-pandemic low of 3.5% that itself was the lowest unemployment rate since 1969 and one of the lowest rates in modern history. This indicates that there is excess demand in the US labour market as the unemployment rate is now well below the FOMC's median estimate of the Nairu of 4% and outside the range of individual FOMC member estimates of 38 to 4.2%. Note that it is also below the median market estimate of the Nairu of 3.8% in Q3 last year. Wages growth has reacted to the tighter labour market, where there has also been a supply response to the pandemic itself, with the strongest growth in wages in people-facing industries, such as hospitality, retail, health and education, presumably reflecting concern about catching COVID. The tightness of the labour market combined with the risk that high actual inflation will feed into high inflation expectations helps explain the Fed's pressing need to quickly return monetary policy to a more neutral setting and potentially adopt tight policy. Finally, we want to talk about why the New South Wales budget could be $9.5 billion better off. So the New South Wales budget remarkably remained close to balance in February, as recent data shows, providing welcome news for New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane. The budget deficit is likely to come in $5 billion better than the full-year government forecast for 2021 to 2022, i.e. FY 2022, even allowing for conservative estimates of the potential costs of recent tragic flooding and assuming that the Commonwealth's reimbursement of 75% of the cost of this natural disaster does not arrive until next next financial year. If the Commonwealth reimbursed New South Wales for its 75% share of the floods this financial year via an advance, the budget could be as much as $8.5 to $9.5 billion better off. While it is more likely that the Commonwealth payments are made in the next financial year or later, there is a possibility that an advance is made due to the pending federal election in May this year. These upside budget surprises should reduce New South Wales debt funding tasks by a similar quantum in 2022 to 2023 or FY23. Further outperformance over the remainder of 2021 to 2022 or FY22 could potentially reduce New South Wales' debt funding needs by more than $5 billion in the next financial year before accounting for the very substantial impact of infrastructure delays, which we have previously discussed. The New South Wales budget has been very volatile over recent months, even after seasonal adjustment. But the Omicron outbreak has not had a measurable effect on the bottom line, contrasting with the large deficits posted during the Delta outbreak. This contrast reflects more targeted assistance to the community during Omicron and a more limited impact of the outbreak on the economy. The general New South Wales government budget on a cash basis was broadly imbalanced in trend terms in February, i.e. close to surplus, although this will very likely be revised to a modest deficit as more data becomes available given how trend estimates are calculated. This is clear from the seasonally adjusted estimates, which showed the deficit widened from about $500 million in January, when the budget was similarly close to surplus, to more, almost $1 billion in February, while flood-related costs will add to the deficit over the coming months. Note that this is subject to the timing of the Commonwealth's reimbursement of 75% of these costs. The improvement in the New South Wales budget over the financial year to date mainly reflects stronger revenue, particularly grants and subsidies, but payments have fallen and are back at pre-Delta levels with a large fall in financial assistance payments to households and businesses. 
the budget is likely to come in about $5 billion better than the government expectations for this financial year, even allowing for the economic and fiscal costs of the trading funds in northern New South Wales and ignoring the fact that the Commonwealth will pay for 75% of the cost of the funds. The government has forecast a deficit of $30 billion for FY22 as a whole, but the rolling annual sum of the monthly numbers shows the deficit over the past 12 months has narrowed from $25 billion in October and November to $21 billion in January and February. Conservatively, allowing for about $5 to $6 billion in New South Wales government assistance and economic fallout from the floods, where payments could well end up being spread into 2022 to 2023, the deficit for this financial year is on track to come in at about $5 billion better than the government's four-year estimate of $30 billion. This is an improvement on Coolabar's previous estimate using New South Wales monthly budget data for January, where we assumed $5 billion in flood costs, which implied the deficit could come in at $4 to $5 billion better than expectations. The Commonwealth will reimburse 75% of New South Wales' direct disaster costs, which means that the New South Wales budget will improve further when those payments are made in arrears, where the Commonwealth has said that these costs are currently unquantifiable. Net of the Commonwealth's reimbursements for flood expenses, the New South Wales budget could be about $8.5 to $9.5 billion better off, although this is more likely to be realised next financial year after the state has applied for a reimbursement. The pending federal election in May raises a possibility that the Commonwealth makes an advance on these payments, as it did in 2010-11 to with the floods and cyclone in Queensland. For next financial year, New South Wales should benefit from a materially reduced debt funding task in the order of $8.5 to $9.5 billion if reimbursement is made that year. If TCOP issues debt in line with its official funding task for FY22, which was last updated in December, it would be effectively pre-funding something like this amount for FY23. Given the state of the economy, it is reasonable to assume that all states and territories are also experiencing some degree of outperformance of their official deficit forecasts, which paves the way for lower debt issuance in FY23, given the states will have done a lot of pre-funding by sticking to their official debt issuance tasks. Victoria is a standout because it is running more than $5 billion ahead of its official debt issuance task in FY22, which means that it might have unwittingly done significant pre-funding for FY23, much as it had done in FY21. Note that this FY21 pre-funding ended up being used to pay for the cost of the COVID lockdowns. Separate to the tracking of budget performance, in recent research, we quantified the impact of delays to infrastructure spending on state issuance which the empirical data suggests will lag government forecasts by 10 to 20%. Given the currently very tight labour market and supply chain blockages, where New South Wales is reportedly considering delaying a number of mega projects, we estimate this could reduce the state's debt funding needs in FY23 by another $8 billion, that is assuming 10% delays, to $16 billion, which assumes 20% delays. And that's a wrap, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, please feel free to reach out with any questions. You can contact us at info at coolabarcapital.com or reach out directly via the Coolabar Capital website. Please listen to the disclaimer at the end and I hope you have a lovely week ahead. 
This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.